Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. less than two weeks till the United States election. And uh, one thing is clear, even if the results aren't. A a lot of things are very, very strange about this election. And I don't just mean because it's 2020, and I don't just mean because the candidates are not exactly, uh, you know, maybe at least one of them isn't your most conventional politician. It's that when you take a look at the way that America does its elections, uh, and you compare that to other countries, and then you look at the degree of foreign involvement in the U.S. electoral process, this election looks very, very strange by international standards. So today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about the U.S. election. We're going to talk about how it looks from the point of view of the rest of the world, which hosts a lot of elections, and also how it looks from the point of view of foreign involvement. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Should I, should I interfere in this podcast throughout? I mean, you're talking. Oh, yeah. Obligatory Alex morning joke. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jen, didn't you just get uh, get in a bike accident? And like, I feel like this was worse than your bike accident, that that joke right there, the experience of it. <laughs> that joke was a very tragic accident. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I was in a bike accident, a runner decided to run directly into me while I was riding my bike and sent me flying off my bike face first into the dirt. Uh, I'm fine, worldly listeners. It's okay. But uh, hey, guy who ran into me, uh, if you listen to this, you owe me 160 bucks for the new helmet I have to buy because my head bounced off the ground. Thanks. Meanwhile, Alex (laughs) owes you more for psychological damages from bad jokes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the check, yeah, the tab for that is just still going up nonstop. Anyway, as much as I would like to cut Alex's mic like a moderator at a debate to Trump, uh, I, I think we should maybe start with you, Alex. You uh, had been doing some writing recently about uh, one feature of the American elections that seemed very weird to me and seems weird to, well, when I talk to people from other countries who vote in their countries, they have the same reaction. Why are American voter lines so long? That is just not normal in international context. Yeah, so we should know that a bunch of advanced democracies hold elections. They usually do not have the scenes that we see in the United States, these hour-long lines um, going around uh, blocks and taking, you know, half a day in order to cast a ballot. A couple of caveats before moving forward, why we're seeing long lines in the U.S. One, of course, is when there's a pandemic, right? And so people are standing far apart. They're doing extra safety precautions, including you know, like enhanced cleaning after someone votes in a booth and a whole bunch of things related to making sure everyone's safe. So that takes longer. There's uh, also the fact that a lot of staff is new and untrained because, you know, older poll watchers usually uh, you know, do not want to actually go out and risk their lives or risk getting the, the, the virus. And so that causes inefficiencies. And of course, voter suppression for all the reasons that we know that there are laws on the books in certain places that 
make it harder, especially for, for minorities to vote. So you add all this together and you're getting extremely long lines these days. Now, why still do we have long lines despite all the things that I mentioned? Well, a lot of it has to do um, with the fact that we have not really adopted some of the best practices that we see around the world. The main thing here to know is that the U.S. roughly has around 10,500 simultaneous elections happening, right? Because there are multiple jurisdictions with multiple different kinds of laws and, and regulations for how to run elections. There's no coherence as to how an election can run. And in many cases, the person running the election in those jurisdictions is a partisan, someone who was elected by a party or by people, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever, to run those elections. And so the the room for like partisan loyalties to overrun technocracy and also for corruption and all that, like all of that exists more in an American system than in certain foreign systems. And we'll get into those in a moment. But those are basically some of the problems with the U.S. is that it's so diverse. There are multiple laws on the books that can lead to a bunch of different issues. And of course, we have uh, the pandemic and, you know, voter suppression and all that. So that doesn't mean that elections elsewhere are perfect, but when we look into like what other countries do, there are reasons why they don't have as long lines as we do. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not just I think you know the long lines, though. That's obviously like what's you know a lot of people are worried about right now. Um, I think just kind of more generally, things like you know voter registration, um, even you know people showing up to the polls, like the U.S among its like peer democracies is not great when it comes to voter participation. Um, you know, a lot of other countries have a lot more people uh, and percentages of their population that actually participate in voting. Uh, some of that is, you know, because they make them. So in some places, you know, it's the law. You have to vote and you can be fined if you don't vote. Um, obviously, we don't have that here. But it's also, you know, like Alex said, like it's just ease of voting. We don't make it really easy to vote here. In fact, we make it really difficult to vote in some cases. Uh, as worldly listeners may remember, I'm from Texas. It is not super easy to vote there, uh, especially depending on where you live. Um, just recently, you know, just this election, Texas is trying to kind of uh, stop the expansion of like polling places and ballot boxes and things like that. And, you know, there's a long legacy of racism and you know, trying to suppress the vote going on there um, and elsewhere in the South. But like, it's it's literally like not easy, like to just even make sure you're registered to vote, to, you know, figure out where your polling place is, all of that. Like, it's a whole rigmarole you have to go through. And it's like that in a lot of states too. And so, you know, a lot of countries just look at us like, that's insane. Why, why would you do that? Um, and we even heard, you know, Trump, I think at one point, uh, a few months ago saying that that voting is a privilege. Like, no, it's not. In the United States, it's literally your right. Um, and, you know, I would argue as a citizen, it's your duty. But the fact is, we just don't make it easy for you to exercise your rights. I want to pick up on something Alex said a second ago that I think is really important for understanding what's going on here. And it's the administration of the elections, right? It's not just that uh, things are fragmented and devolved down to the state level. Uh, in a lot of cases, which obviously creates a patchwork of different regulations, right? What we're concerned about is a systematic pattern across the country of there being more difficulty in voting. And a lot of that has to do with the partisan administration of elections. And this, I, I cannot stress enough, is uh, something that seems off about the American system. 
um, again, in, in international context, right? In a lot of countries, there are nonpartisan uh, electoral boards that and electoral administrations that are tasked with operating uh, and administering the electoral system. So the idea is that you run it in according to neutral principles of fairness and access to voting. You try to facilitate voting because in democratic political systems, generally speaking, you believe people ought to be voting. They ought to be participating more. That is the entire point of the setup of the system, that people are, are self-determining and self-governing. Uh, so in that context, you get people to try to figure out what the best way to administer voting systems is in the fairest and most secure fashion. Uh, when you have partisans in charge of it, obviously the principles change somewhat, right? And so when when uh, governors and state legislatures are deeply involved in these processes in a way that they are in the U.S., uh, you end up allowing things like what Jen was just talking about in Texas, right, where the governor can do something like restrict mail-in drop-off centers to one per county, regardless of the size of county. So, like, you can have a, a rural, very, very low-population county that just has one drop-off center, and then one that has a, uh, a you know, huge population, like um, Travis County, where Austin, Texas is, and then there's only one in that entire county, Right, which is ludicrous because the demand is so much higher, and then you get people waiting in line to drop off mail-in ballots, which should be the easiest thing in the world because you're literally just putting it in a slot. At least in theory, you could get people waiting much longer than they should have to for such an easy task. Uh, and it, it's it's a real problem, right? When And it also is one that leads to, I think, something else pernicious about the American system, which is the politicization of the process of voting, which obviously is a political thing and can advantage one side or the other. But typically, it, you want political debate to focus on the substance of the issues, not the process of voting, not the, you know, the two sides bickering over how the rules governing the system should work. They should debate things like tax rates and foreign policy. Uh, when you have a debate about the system itself, you start to raise questions about its legitimacy. And you see that in struggling democracies and in the United States. Yeah, I think just to kind of put a fine point on it here, um, in terms of comparison, I think India just offers such a dramatic kind of contrast to the U.S. when it comes to, like, access to polling stations. So India is really big, like, landmass-wise and population-wise. Um, so I think in, like, 2019, there were, like, something like, 900 million people eligible to vote and more than 67% of them did vote. So that's a lot of people that you have to figure out how to get, you know, access to ballots. But in India, again, unlike the United States, there's actually a law that election voting machines have to be placed within two kilometers of every single voter. And they take that incredibly seriously. They will literally bring a voting machine on an elephant, like up a mountain to get to someone to make sure that they are within two kilometers of a voting machine. Um, Vox actually has a really cool video on this. I highly recommend checking it out. We can link to it in the show notes. But it's remarkable. And it's just kind of, you know, and again, you know, we're not saying that like India doesn't have problems in terms of, you know, disenfranchisement of some voters. They do, especially with minority voters and Muslim voters in particular. But the system itself is, again, like the whole point is to try to make sure that everybody has access to voting. And so it's not supposed to be this partisan kind of fight. It's supposed to be, you know, more neutral. Yeah. And in the course of my reporting on how other countries do elections, you know, there were some people who would be like, 
Well, part of the problem is that the U.S. is too big. And like, it's true. We are 330 million people. Not everyone can vote, but you know, it's a big country. But then, right, India is the counterexample, right? A country that's, right. that we're, we're three times as many people, like our, the U.S. population can vote, um, ha- can do so. Of course, part, part of the issue there as well is not only is it access, but their, their election is like multiple weeks long. So, you know, people can kind of go in right. and out and, and and do it. But but this goes to show that, like, there's a problem in India that it, that it is too big or, like, it is very big. And, like, how do you get people to vote? Well, you give them, make sure their voting machine's nearby and that and that they have a lot of time to vote. Uh, another thing to do um, is you could follow Canada's example. Yay, Canada. So one thing that Canada has is called Elections Canada. It's a federal agency that oversees general elections. And it is a nonpartisan, independent organization that, you know, is pretty small out when it's not near a general election and ramps up pretty intensely close to one. And its entire job is to make sure that elections go off without a hitch, that people who who want to vote can vote. Um, And there's, again, no, like, political leanings to it. I mean, sometimes there's small little scandals around it, and it's not a perfect agency. But this is a government agency whose, again, job it is to make sure people can vote, and it standardizes the rules across elections, all you know, from Halifax all the way to, to Vancouver. I'm sure there's a bigger city further east, but that's the extent of my Canadian geography for the moment. Um, and, <laughs> and uh, like, I, that's a, it's an incredible thing to have. France has something very similar. It, this is the kind of thing that, again, removes partisan passions or potential corruption. So you may remember in the U.S. very quickly— um, you know, there was a secretary of state, not a diplomat, but the person in charge of elections in Georgia who was running uh, for governor against Stacey Abrams and not going to get into whether or not there were, you know, machinations. There were definitely allegations of some problems, but like that seems like a conflict of interest that the guy running elections can also be in the election. Uh, Something similar happened in (laughs) Kansas as well. And so something like Elections Canada, um, you know, removes that problem. Um, Related to that, right, in the U.S. we have... um Problems of representation in addition to the process of voting, uh, right? Like, you know, gerrymandering as a term came from the United States, uh, from Elbridge Gerry, a uh, colonial area legislator who tried to redraw the map of Maryland to uh, favor his political interests and his party. But the, this has become a real enduring tradition in the United States. And again, we are not unique in this context. There are gerrymandering and representation problems in a lot of different countries, uh, I think one of the things, again, to sort of speaking to the big theme of, of our comments so far, uh, is that the, the drawing of district lines when it comes to representation are done by partisan legislatures in a lot of cases. And so that is is always just necessarily going to be done to the advantage of the party that is drawing the lines. There is no way that uh, that won't happen, whereas in, in many other countries that do end up uh, using a first-past-the-post system where it's really important, um, you know, where district lines are set because representatives represent specific areas as opposed to a proportional representation system where you just uh, vote at the national level and then the party gets uh, as many seats as it wins in the percentage of national votes. In first-past-the-post systems, those the, the boundaries of representative districts really matter, ridings in Canada um, is, is the is the term there, for example. And there, it's done in on a nonpartisan fashion. And in the U.S., it is not, <laughs> to put it mildly. And so you end up getting in a situation where even if people surmount the difficulties in voting, and they do, obviously, it's not like impossible to vote, it's just hard, um, they end up not 
having an easy time uh, uh, in, in a lot of cases of being able to make a meaningful choice, right? You are in a heavily R or heavily D area where the incumbent wins in the House of Representatives something like 90% of the time, and you you don't get to choose, or you're in a state, um, this is a separate problem from gerrymandering, but kind of is like national gerrymandering, right, With by nature of the Senate, where small states have this outsized influence on the national government, and and your your vote oftentimes is determined by the partisan lean of your state, where a lot of the elections are just not competitive. It, it seems like it's a system that not only makes it difficult to vote, but also makes it such that when you do vote, the influence, the marginal impact and meaningfulness of the act of casting a ballot is more limited than it needs to be. Yeah, um, you know, and I think there's just also quickly for for anyone, I don't know, maybe our, some of our international listeners who aren't super familiar with the joy that is gerrymandering, um, I highly recommend that you just take a look. You could Google around and find it at the shape of some of our voting districts. Uh, they are very creative. Uh, so instead of just like dividing, you know, a state up on a grid system or like, you know, uh, based on some kind of normal way of dividing things, the, the parties literally in the state legislatures draw the lines in ways that like they try to draw a circle kind of around and go around like this maybe neighborhood that doesn't vote our way. And so we're going to put that in a separate district. We're going to push that with this other district so we can kind of make sure that their influence doesn't impact the vote. And so you end up with these like bizarre jigsaw puzzle piece voting districts that like there's literally no other way to explain how it got that way except for like bald partisan political gerrymandering. So it's wild. I highly recommend checking it out. But I mean, it's also just like kind of the basic, you know, function going back to what we were talking about, like the basic, you know, infrastructure and the basic system of casting your ballot, right? The fact that we have, you know, 50 states plus what's something, 14 plus territories and, and areas that also vote, every single one of those is different, right? They're on a different system. They make up their own rules. Uh, and that means everything from, you know, yes, how many polling places there are in, in any district um, but also things like, you know, is there early voting? Is there mail-in voting? When does early voting start? How does that work? Can you get a ballot sent out to you without requesting it if you're registered? Um, how do you register? Can you do online voter registration? Uh, things like that. And so you end up having this kind of mishmash system. And we're seeing right now, you know, because of of the coronavirus pandemic, it's kind of put a, you know, trying to really bright spotlight on this system and how dysfunctional it is because we're realizing that, you know, a lot of people want to vote by mail this election. And then, you know, we're seeing all the problems with that. Also trying to figure out, you know, early voting, like the idea of having early voting is because election day is literally one day and a lot of people have jobs where they can't go. And yes, your employer is supposed to technically allow you to, you know, take the time you need to go vote into your civic duty, but that's a lovely idea. In practice, it usually very often doesn't happen, especially if you work in some lower wage jobs and do shift work. Um, I, you know, I've had difficulty having time to vote when I worked for, you know, various retail and restaurant jobs, right? Like, it's just really hard to go get time off to go do that. Um, also, you have to drive sometimes pretty far to get to your polling place, things like that. And so, you know, some countries even just making it like a national holiday, making election day a national holiday so that everybody's off. To be fair, just because it's a national holiday doesn't mean a restaurant worker doesn't have to work. So it's not a perfect situation. 
But, you know, having it on the weekends, for example, or, you know, having a whole week of voting or extending early voting and making sure that every state and every district has like a lengthy time of early voting to allow people to adjust their schedules. Like those are all really easy fixes that would help increase voter participation and voter turnout. But again, because we have this partisan system, because we have it on a state-by-state basis, that stuff doesn't happen. And so we see these insane voting lines. And, you know, Alex, you mentioned this in in your piece on this. Um, You know, in Australia, they have a delightful tradition that I highly feel like we should adopt in our country of the democracy sausage, I believe it's called. (laughs) What? It is the democracy sausage. The democracy sausage. So uh, apparently it became this kind of like national tradition on election day that people would set up like grills and sell like sausages uh, near polling places. So you like, you go vote, you get your little I voted sticker. I don't know if they have that there, but let's just say that they do. And then you go like right over across the street to your democracy sausage booth and you get your sausage and you snack on it while you drive home. Um, And so people were saying that the lines for the democracy sausage are longer than the actual lines to vote in Australia because the system is just set up really well. Uh, Well, I would prefer that to be a plant-based sausage just because of my own preferences, but you can have plant-based democracy sausage. Maybe they have vegan options. that would be nice for me. They might have vegan Um, options. Who knows? One one note I want to... I want to add to what Jen just said. It's Hebrew national democracy. Sausage. That's not it's kosher. It's not kosher. vegetarian. I'm sure. Yeah, I know. I, why I just said kosher. <laughs> Oi. <laughs> Oi. So I like that. Thanks, Jen. You appreciate my culture. I really, I really do appreciate it. Um, I do. So uh, as of 2018, Pew did a little look into countries in the OECD. You know, an organization of developed countries. That and how they structure day of voting. And so in, in 27 out of the 36 countries, voting is on a weekend uh, to try to avoid the problems that Jen was just talking about. And then uh, in the nine countries that have voting on a weekday, two of them have it as a national holiday. So there are only uh, seven out of the 36, uh, including the U.S., that, uh, that don't do that. Now, some of those countries do have pretty decent electoral systems. Um, but when you combine that with a lot of the other barriers to voting in the United States, it just, it makes the system, it's one, it's, it's not like there's one thing that makes the system relatively bad by international standards. It's, it's that it's additive, right? It's that when you take all of these little individual pieces, each of which is a problem of a sort, and you put them together, you end up with, with a system that performs far more poorly than you would expect from the world's oldest democracy. So I do want to caution on one thing, which is like there are ways for Americans, obviously there are ways for Americans to vote and there are a lot of problems, but like the fact that there is early voting and mail-in voting and all that, there is a decent amount of access. And when we think about like election day and whether we should have federal holiday on elections, like the election isn't one day, right? It's multiple days. There are multiple opportunities to vote. It doesn't mean everyone does. doesn't mean that it's easy. It should be easier. There's no question. But what I think the American system has, which follows what a lot of global countries do, uh, do um, is that it, it does like offer at least a decent amount of time and a decent amount of, of options in which to vote. I think that's important to note. It's There are rigged systems. There's no question. But um, like it's not a dire picture. That said, there are ways to improve it. So when, you, when we mentioned Australia and the democracy sausage, which obviously should get top billing, 
But what Australia does, for example, is in their territories, they make it so on election day, you can vote in any polling place in your territory. So if one line is too long, you drive to another one and you vote there and it's just fine. Um, I would love for that to happen. I, you, I'm sure listeners like I do, uh, if you're in the U.S., you get a little card and it says exactly which polling booth you you can vote at, and that's the one you must go to. Uh, and that sucks if you know the line is too long or you're, the hours don't work for you or whatever it may be. Um, and so that's one option we could adopt. And then one more fanciful option, uh, if we were Estonia, a country of 1.3 million people, uh, they basically every citizen lives by this digital ID card where they can do anything from like filing their taxes to social security issues to a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and on top of that, also voting. Uh, and so they basically plug this into their computer. It, uh, it's, it's got a chip reader, identifies them. They vote for parliament on it. Over about 60% of people do it for parliamentary elections. And that, of course, you know, uh, shortens the amount of lines on election day. We could, ob- we could possibly do that here. Of course, there are a lot of, you know, cybersecurity concerns. And would Americans be fine having a digital ID card that tracks their movements? Perhaps not. Uh, it would be a massive undertaking you know, and you have politicians usually preferring paper ballots based on the interference issues that have been going on. But like, these are the things, these are the solutions other countries are offering. And it's folly to me for the U.S. to look at its system and go, we're good. We can't make any improvements. There are definitely some improvements, um, whether we look around the world or even just fixing um, and, you know, tweaking the way we do our democracy at home. So we're going to take a quick break on that uncharacteristically positive note from Alex. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a different aspect of the U.S. elections from the international perspective, which is foreign involvement. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about American elections, which has honestly mostly involved talking about the shortcomings of the system, which does not look great by international standards. And that's true, though it's obviously not entirely broken. Yet there are countries that are pushing to make it even worse than it is. As you may well know, there is a problem with misinformation in the American political context. Um, And we know from 2016 that uh, Russia was a contributor. We don't know how significant or what percentage of the problem derived from Russian-related activities in that election, but there really was uh, some attempt to pollute the informational environment. Well, this year, Russia is not the only country getting in on the fun of trying to mess with American voters' heads. You've got China, Iran, and North Korea all throwing their hats into the rings. So, Jen, give our readers a picture of, of what these countries are doing to try to confuse everybody about what's happening. Yeah, so some of the information that we had on Iran and China in particular was pretty basic and not super related to the election directly. They were doing a lot of kind of stuff related to our politics. For example, Iran was like trying to get access to, you know, Trump administration, uh, government accounts to try to essentially, you know, read what they're thinking and what they're planning when it comes to policy toward Iran. Um, That all kind of changed or we got a lot more information literally last night uh, the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, came out and did this kind of surprise press conference um, and basically announced that Iran uh, and Russia, to some degree, had gotten uh, a hold of some voter registration databases, some voter registration information. And it looks like Iran was behind a uh, series of spoof emails that purported to be from the Proud Boys. Now, this is that kind of far right organization that supports Donald Trump. Uh, You may remember, if you've been following the election closely, 
uh, that Trump was asked whether he denounces this group in the previous, um, in one of his town, recent town halls. He declined to sort of do so and said, you know, I want them to, to stand back and stand by. So a lot of them kind of took that as this, uh, you know, call to arms that they should, you know, basically go to polling places and, you know, I don't know, do voter intimidation or something like that. It's not totally clear. But anyway, there's this organization uh, that's far right. They're pretty unsavory, I would say. Uh, that's my opinion. Just, just, just <laughs> you guys firing, may differ, but I doubt Firing it. off takes here, Jed, really is wild. Yeah, hot by. take. Proud Boys, not awesome. Um, so it looks like these, uh, so Iran or somebody, you know, affiliated with the Iranian government, hackers, got this voter registration database information. They sent these emails pretending to be the Proud Boys and essentially saying, hey, you, I have your voter registration information, everything, email, phone number, you got it. So you better vote for Donald Trump or else or we'll come after you. Take this seriously. To show that you were taking this seriously, you better go and change your registration to register as a Republican and vote for Trump. And if you don't, we'll know. And so it was this like really bizarre, threatening like email, and it looked like it came from the Proud Boys. And so what intelligence officials are saying is not that it was trying to actually get people to necessarily do that, but that it was trying to essentially further connect the Proud Boys to Trump and try to make him look like he is affiliated with this abhorrent group that is doing voter intimidation. You know, for a country that follows American politics relatively closely, as Iran does, this is an incredibly ham-handed attempt to get involved in it. Right. It was it was oddly specific and also, like, it was already a thing. Like, Trump was already kind of affiliating himself or, like, refusing to, like, unaffiliate himself with them. So it was kind of like, what are you, like, what's the point? And it's kind of bizarre. Uh, and, it, I mean, it seems like this voter registration information, some of it may have been stuff that you can actually get publicly um, if you do, like, a records request. Obviously, it's not going to be like, hi, I'm Hassan Rouhani from the Iranian government. I would like to request some American voter registration data from Florida and, you know, Broward County. Like, that's an awkward email to send. Um, so, you know, it looks like they probably just did some hacking to get that information. But it's not like it was, like, super duper top secret information, but still like you're seeing this kind of, like you said, this like ham handed attempt to kind of interfere, but it's also like, what? Like, I don't know how, how important or how like effective that is. Um, but that actually goes to something that we're going to talk about more, which is that like this year, a lot of the work that, you know, countries like Russia and now we're seeing Iran and, and to some degree China, uh, we're doing to spread misinformation, to, you know, discount the legitimacy of the election, to, you know, harm one side or the other, one candidate or the other, is already being done by, like, Americans, like, publicly. So spreading disinformation, like, the president does that every day on Twitter. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, why are you guys wasting your money? Just, like, save your money. We're doing it to ourselves. So a couple of things on the Iran bit. One is... I think a reason why they went for it is the like official proudboys.com, whatever the website was, something along like that, expired. And so I think they just, you know, they 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 had their shot. Like they took it over. <laughs> and what else are you gonna do with it? Like be like if, if that's the website you you're gonna hack into or own, like then you kind of have to work with what you got. And what they had was, <laughs> we are the Proud Boys, so please vote for Trump. Like that's what you, you know. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> I just need to stop you for a second. I'm just picturing 
how that operation went down. Like some guy in Iran's just like chilling in an internet cafe and was like, holy crap, you guys, proudboys.org or whatever it is, is, is totally like unregistered. Somebody quick, call the intelligence officials. I got an idea. No, these things are, are readily available and like visible. So we already know of a couple that are probably going to go out. Like, <laughs> But it's way funnier state, my way, Alex. Yes, but like the state and local domains for like Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Massachusetts and others are going to expire before November 3rd, right? So like these are things you can look at and, and hackers are definitely aware of and they, I'm sure they have little calendars with markers or whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, like, so let's do, let's just focus on, on the notion the that worst like- worst job ever. Yeah, but like that was- they were working with what they had, it seems. Uh, two is I did talk to a source who I trust tremendously. And and what this person told me was that, you know, familiar with the intelligence, that the operation was meant uh, to harm Trump. And, and the way to do so uh, was basically, to, again, even though they were saying, like, vote for Trump or, you know, or else, it really was meant to, like, cause a connection um, between like the Proud Boys far right organization and Trump. So some people would go, oh, I don't really like the president that much. Um, but what Iran is really doing more broadly, it is what a lot of countries are doing and, and connects to what Jen said, is that they are aiming to sow discord and, and, and you know, like distrust in the electoral process. And, and Russia paved the way for this in 2016, but this is easier somewhat to do now. Um, even though the Iranians are doing somewhat the same thing, it's just like people already are willing to believe misinformation or conspiracy theories or whatever. So the the amount of like effort that Russia exp- you know expended to pose as like Black Lives Matter activists and and create fake protests or whatever it may be uh, or protests that were real but were not really you know done by Black Lives Matter protesters um, like all of that effort doesn't isn't really needed anymore like if you needed a big push in 2016 now it's just like a a light little like blow like whew, and then like things just move into action and of course everyone's aided by the president um, retweeting conspiracy theories himself but like this is the situation that we're in, right? That it's pretty easy to send spoof emails. It's pretty easy to sow discord. And it's pretty easy to cause like the kind of nerves that we have. Because when you see DNI, a director of national intelligence, Radcliffe, uh, John Radcliffe speak, he is a Trump loyalist. And so you're like, I'm not sure this is, you know, it's the day before a debate. Not sure it's 100% accurate. But then you dig into it and you go, oh, I mean, this stuff is actually happening regardless of who's at the very top of our intelligence apparatus. Yeah, and just to add in really quickly, so on the disinformation piece of this, like, that's not the only thing that they did. So apparently some of these emails linked to a video that, <laughs> I'm sorry, by the way, was set to an instrumental version of Metallica's Enter Sandman, which, spot on, of guys. Um, um, and so the video is basically, uh, and I haven't seen it, but this is according to CNN, who who saw a copy of the video and is describing it here. Um, the video is a screen recording of a so-called tutorial that shows how uh, a purported fraudulent ballot is allegedly cast by someone, and it's uh, using this federal voting assistance program. So it's basically using these ballots that are federal write-in absentee ballots that are used um, usually just by people like who are abroad or in the military if something goes wrong with their ballots. But it's basically this this video trying to communicate that all mail-in voting is is fraudulent. Um, because there's going to be a lot of mail-in voting this year, as we've already seen because of the pandemic. So again, we have this like attempt to spread disinformation to make, you know, it look like the election is fraudulent. But here again, we already have that happening. Trump has been saying this for months that mail-in voting is ripe with fraud. His, you know, Bill Barr, uh, 
at, at the Department of Justice, the Attorney General has been, you know, giving credence to this, even though other parts of the government have literally been trying to put out videos saying the opposite, saying, no, it's fine. You can, like, voting is safe. It's not fraudulent. It's totally fine. So, again, like, you see this thing where these foreign actors are trying to, to create, you know, discord and, and so doubt in the democratic process. But, like, it's already happening, including by the president. So it's kind of, again, like, how effective is this and how much does it even matter at this point? Yeah, that, that's what I've been thinking about this whole conversation, Jen. It's like, who cares, right? It's not just that these countries are attempting to to mess with the election, which they, they, they obviously are. Part of what made the Russia stuff concerning in 2016 is that it was new and we didn't have either right. the sort of intellectual capabilities or the like technical tools for dealing with this properly. It just like wasn't, it wasn't a priority for platforms. They didn't have a good policy on how to handle state involvement in an election like this. And this year you have, you know, for all their faults, places like Facebook and Twitter are taking the threat of foreign involvement in the election really seriously and shutting down these involvements. Like, and you read about some of these groups, I read, read an article about uh, Chinese efforts to be involved in the election and they've set up, you know, fake groups on both sides, uh, just like Russia did in 2016. Like some of these, uh, Platform groups got shut down when they had two members. They had video networks where the only people who watched the videos were other people inside the network, bots that were set up to watch <laughs> these videos. Because the videos were terrible, right? They were like robot voiceovers talking about racism. Like anybody needs a like a, a voice-to-text thing about Black Lives Matter when you could actually read or listen to or watch the, the huge volume of content that's by real people on this and not just like auto-populated on the internet by, uh, well, like some guy in the basement of Beijing's uh, internet operations organization uh, headquarters, right? It's like, that's not the actual name of their organization. Incidentally, I just was using <laughs> that as a generic term. Um, but the point we, is- I think it's, we got that. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, good. As, as long as that's clear. It seems like obviously we should be vigilant about foreign involvement in U.S. elections, but it doesn't seem like Russia is obviously the most sophisticated of these countries, and it doesn't seem like Russian efforts in 2020 have had the degree of influence that they may have had in 2016. Uh, and all of these other countries are, are even less skilled at trying to pollute the informational environment. So not only is it the case that the nature of American politics itself is is doing most of the informational polluting here. It's that the foreign campaigns are are just are ineffective because the people who and organizations who are paying attention to them are doing a better job at policing them and are more attuned to the risks. But that's if you focus on what's happening now, right? Like 2016 was a bit of a watershed because a bunch of people fell for it, even though the Russians and a bunch of other foreign countries have been interfering in our elections for, for decades, frankly. Um, the, the, the online tools now make it um, a lot uh, easier. But what, we're, what worries me is that at the moment, yes, you have a more sophisticated actor, Russia, and you have less sophisticated actors like China, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, et cetera. Um, but they're getting better. They're getting a lot better. And they're learning from each other. So there's a great quote in um, in an NBC news piece which we'll link to in the show notes from uh, Laura Rosenberger, who focuses uh, a lot on, on election interference and, and disinformation. I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but it basically goes along the lines of like, if Russia is the weather, right, then like China is climate change. And that's because 
China especially has been learning a lot of Russian disinformation techniques and, and, and interference techniques, and they're deploying them already. In fact, um, like against the U.S. because Trump has been so tough on China in regards to, especially after the coronavirus, they deployed a lot of these saying like, no, it, did, we, it didn't happen in Wuhan. Uh, it happened in America. Um, and, and pushing this on their propaganda outlets and all that kind of stuff. And like that was a pretty bold Russian-like step for China to take, one it hadn't really done in a long time. And when we sort of project forward, like, so for the moment, when things aren't that bad, we're doing mildly okay. Um, when things get really bad, will we? Will the U.S. be able to defend itself as ably? Um, I'm not sure. And, and part of the reason I'm not sure is because other countries are developing their own technologies and their own methods and learning, and they're doing this perhaps more brazenly than we are. Um, but at the same time, it's like until the U.S. fixes its polarization problem, its political dysfunction, these cleavages will always be uh, open to exploit. And if they get better at exploiting them and we keep leaving those cleavages open, then we're always going to be vulnerable. And so this is what worries me long term. At the moment, I'm not that freaked out, but this is the like the long term trends are actually quite daunting. So there's actually a really good example of this, Alex. Um, uh, Jen Kirby, who, you know, frequent guest of Worldly has a really great piece from a couple of weeks back about what Russia is actually doing in the 2020 election. And there's this whole story, and I highly recommend you read it, and we'll link to it, of course, in the show notes. But basically, this uh, Russian kind of operation decided to essentially start an, an upstart progressive global news site called Peace Data. And it was supposed to be just like a, you know, an online news outlet. Um, and they went around actually hiring freelance um, bloggers to write for the site and paying them um, to write columns, to write articles on progressive topics. And, you know, that it, it seemed totally legit uh, until it wasn't. All of a sudden, uh, Facebook and Twitter announced, uh, this was in September of this year, that acting on a tip from the FBI, they had taken down a network of accounts connected to peace data and said that they were linked to the Internet Research Agency, the IRA. That's the Russian troll farm that was really influential in the 2016 election. So this it turns out that this entire kind of network of accounts that were set up to promote this new, seemingly completely innocent, upstart, progressive news site were all linked to Russian trolls. And it was completely a Russian influence operation. And if you Think about how kind of the level of sophistication there. It's above just creating a fake Facebook group, right? That has maybe some broken English that's missing some definite articles where you're like, that definitely sounds like a Russian wrote that who doesn't speak English as their first language. This was hiring actual Americans who have actual beliefs that they were writing about genuinely, but to promote, you know, very, uh, you know, certain kind of worldview and you know, the level of sophistication to have it and actually look like a, a genuine kind of domestic news operation, that's, it's really remarkable. That is, it's a, a much, you know, further level of evolution of what they're doing. And it gives it a veneer of legitimacy. And it's really stunning to see that. And that's just one example of something. And, you know, kind of to your point, Alex, my concern is that, you know, we're always fighting the last war. It's kind of an old, you know, adage. Um, you know, we're we're looking out for the things that that these countries did in 2016. We're watching out for that. My concern is what is the stuff they're doing that we don't know about yet, that they've learned that we haven't seen yet, we haven't caught, right? What are the like more advanced, if they're doing that, I assume that they probably are, 
that we don't know that we're not watching for because we haven't seen it yet. And that's where I really get get concerned. The unknown unknowns. Exactly. All right, uh, you two Rumsfeldians. Um, we're going we're gonna to leave you there, listeners. Uh, I want to thank you very much for listening to Worldly. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review our beloved podcast on whatever platform you choose to use. Thanks a lot. We will talk to you all next week. Bye.